Those of us in the health professions may not only be unaware, but miseducated. So many of the foods that we now promote as being uber good are loaded with oxalate. Whenever an oxalate molecule gets stuck somewhere in the body, that starts a new deposit. The regenerating tissue, they're all prone and vulnerable to oxalate getting hung up in those tissues. This constant presence of crystals causing cell damage turns on the immune system chronically. Every other body tissue will sacrifice for the sake of healthy blood to keep the heart working. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. I am really, really excited to release today's episode. So for those of you already familiar with oxalates, I'm sure this episode will really, really speak to you. In fact, you probably sought it out. I would not be surprised by that. But even if you have no idea about oxalates or don't think oxalates might be a problem for you, I was sort of on that train. I didn't think that I personally had a problem with them. But after talking with Sally, oh my goodness, I really think there's something here. I think it's something that more of us should be paying attention to. And so very few people are talking about it. A compound found in plants that could be having a significant effect on your health. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash oxalates. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. Then there will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something I love. People sometimes struggle to find that post. If you can't find it, just search for oxalates. You should be able to find it that way. The second giveaway will be on my Instagram. Similar thing. Just comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the post about this episode to enter to win something I love. A lot of people don't really enter on Instagram, so you have a really, really good chance of winning. And what do I give away? Usually it is full-size, yes, full-size beauty counter products. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Sally Norton. Hi friends, welcome back to the show. I am so excited about the conversation that I am about to have. I'm really excited for what I think I personally am going to learn in this conversation, and I think it will help a lot of listeners out there. So a little bit of a backstory and context for this interview. So as you guys know, I've been... (laughs) floating around in the low-carb paleo world for quite a while, and I've had a suspicion of (laughs) a lot of the potential compounds and plants for probably about a decade now. One of the first huge dietary changes I made, which I am no longer doing, but it was basically I went on to basically an all-meat diet for quite a while. This was way before carnivore was a thing. And that was because I just realized I tended to react to plants. Things just tended to be going on. And as the years progressed and the more I learned, I became more out there in the the popular world with the low-carb diet, things like carnivore. And I even created an app called 
Food Sense Guide on iTunes, and it looks at 11 potentially problematic compounds in food, and that includes things like gluten, lectins, amines, histamines, and something called oxalates. Now, I am really, really fascinated by oxalates. We're going to be diving deep into oxalates in this show. I personally don't think I have an oxalate toxicity issue, but I'm very excited to see what I learned in this conversation. When I was making that app, when I was researching oxalates, I kept coming back to this one resource, a fabulous Miss Sally Norton. She's truly one of the go-to sources on oxalate toxicity, how to deal with that, the symptoms, the signs, all of that stuff. So I am so honored, so excited to be sitting here today with that lady, Sally Norton. So Sally, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I appreciate getting to know you and your listeners. This will be fun. I know. I'm really excited. Actually, my assistant introduced us. And I I remember, I I think I was saying in my Facebook group that I wanted to do a show on oxalates. And she was like, oh, I think I can connect you to Sally Norton. And I was like, oh, yes, please. Because you're just so well-known and so respected in this world. So for listeners who are not familiar with your work, I will tell them a little bit about you. So Sally holds a nutrition degree from Cornell University and a master's of public health degree from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She's worked in the field of integrative medicine at UNC Medical School, and she was project manager of an NIH-funded project for expanding medical education to include more awareness of holistic and alternative healing arts, which I just love that. That is fantastic. And Sally's published many articles in academic and popular journals. She's been in a lot of interviews. And like I said, she's very, very well known for the work that she does on the role of the potential harmful effects of oxalates in our food. So Sally, I have so many questions for you, but to start things off, would you like to tell listeners just a little bit about your personal history and what brought you to this oxalate fixation, obsession, uh, wherever, whatever you want to call it? It is a fixation in, in a, a life's work. There's so much to learn about oxalate and, and like everyone else, Despite my education in nutrition, a degree from a great school, a couple great schools, and working in the field of health promotion, I had decided as a seventh grader that I wanted to get into health promotion. I didn't think of it as that term, but I knew I needed a nutrition degree to help people avoid disease. I realized if you knew how to take care of your body, you wouldn't necessarily have to get sick and get something like cancer or heart disease. I thought, wow, isn't that a fun thing to be doing? So I've been wanting to be in that space for a long, long time. (laughs) Well, when I was in seventh grade was a very long time ago. And so I was always a bit of a goody two-shoes about my lifestyle and my food choices and was a gardener as a young person. I had my own community garden plot when I was like nine or years old or so and continue to garden to this day. So I've got a great interest in plants, food, nutrition, delicious food. I love to cook and health promotion. And I didn't know really anything about oxalate. In my textbooks in school, they were like one inch of text in a single column in a textbook saying, oh, well, these 10 foods over here are high in oxalate and that's bad for kidney stones. And by the way, oxalate's bad for calcium nutrition because it binds it. And that's really all I knew. I didn't really have a high awareness of 
oxalate that I was eating. It's not something like you look at a plate of food and you can't say, oh, that's a high oxalate plate or not. You know, we're just so unaware of it. Those of us in the health professions may not only be unaware, but miseducated. So if I was a nurse or a dietitian and I went to look up information about oxalate, I would find very short, incomplete lists loaded with mistakes. And the lists wouldn't have amounts or wouldn't tell them what the goal of a low oxalate diet would be or an oxalate um, aware diet. What are our goals? What are we trying to do with it? Not information like that, not numbers, how much oxalate is in food, just a list of maybe 40 items that are said to be high oxalate food. And many of these lists published in professional textbooks have a 10 to 20% errors in them. So you can't even turn to a dietitian or your doctor if you think you have an oxalate problem. So I was one of those dumb people (laughs) who knows a lot about health and meditation and whatever, who really didn't know what she was eating. And a lot of us who liked food, who like health, or who like gardening and cooking can get into a thing with certain foods that happen to be accidentally high in oxalate. And if you ever had anyone out there who's had a struggle with their health and who's trying to eat well and then keeps trying harder to eat well, they're likely to turn to more and more of these foods because so many of the foods that we now promote as being uber good, healthy, full of whatever to make us awesome are loaded with oxalate. So the ironic part is, is that if you're very health oriented, there's a chance you could be eating a lot of high oxalate foods. Now, there's also the other side of that because oxalate happens to be into just basic foods that we think consider normal American things to eat, like peanuts, peanut butter, potatoes, and chocolate. So you could be, you know, like a Hershey's whatever junkie, potato chip junkie, that sort of thing, and also be consuming a huge amount of oxalate. Did you have a health condition that keyed you into this? If you go all the way back, which is what I do with my clients, when I work with people one-on-one, I take a deep history and think deeply about their origins and beginnings. Because a lot of us who, are, who got so much oxalate into our system that we were quite sick and broken can really break yourself and break your health. And it's a long road back when oxalates start accumulating in your tissue. When you start overloading your body with oxalate, it can turn become very serious illness, and even to the point of being the unidentified cause of people's early death, believe it or not. And I was already having trouble as a 12-year-old. Around that same year, I was deciding what to do with health, be a health professional. I was having back pain. I was waking up in the morning sometimes with like almost like a paralysis that would last like a second. And in college, I developed pain in my one foot, which developed into two feet. I had to drop out of college for foot surgery. I tried to take tennis in college and I didn't have the elbow strength to really manage the racket. So I've had like tendonitis and weak elbows and weak connective tissue, foot problems. And I developed a tremendous amount of arthritis that lasted all through the years I was vegetarian and vegan. I did those diets each for about eight years apiece. And boy, was I a big, swollen, arthritic weakling (laughs) who did yoga and ate perfectly and so on. I mean, I've had so many health problems that eventually it ended my career. 
as a grant writer at the local university here, I had a faculty position designing and writing and submitting and administrating public health research grants. And I I got to the point where I could no longer sit. I had to kneel on my knees at least half of the day because my back wasn't really able to tolerate sitting all day. I needed a hysterectomy. I was really having trouble there and had to quit and have a hysterectomy. I didn't recover well from that. My doctor sent me to a sleep doctor who discovered that my brain was waking up 29 times an hour. So I had all this intense fatigue. I could barely read. I could barely function. I had no exercise tolerance, basically laying on the couch wondering why I can't sleep. And then I I spent three years researching what were the causes of brain problems to the point where you're not sleeping well and was directed towards this autotoxicity that can come from bacterial overgrowth in the intestines, which is often called SIBO, small bacteria, where the bacteria are kind of backing up and living in your higher up in the gut than they're supposed to be. But that's not what my problem was. I was toxic, but it wasn't the bacteria doing it. It was my sweet potatoes and Swiss chard. Speaking to the SIBO thing, I think so, so many people fall into that rabbit hole. I was definitely in that rabbit hole. And to this day, I do think a lot of people have that, but I do wonder oftentimes how often is it actually other things going on? And probably now that I think about it, because I remember I was in a really large SIBO Facebook group. And I think that might've been the first time that I started seeing things about oxalates just because people in, in that world are so discussing like all of these potential things that might be involved. Backing up a little bit and just looking at what are oxalates? It's always such a simple question that I start with, but what are oxalates and and what defense mechanism do they serve in the plant and why is that a problem for us? Yes. So oxalate is a chemical that's all through nature, but plants make a lot of it. And when we eat food, it's the plant foods that we're getting it from. And some plants are so much oxalate, they're known to be poisonous. You know, there's several house plants or plants you see in the mall, like the Diffenbachia plant that are so loaded with oxalates that even one drop of sap from that plant can put you in the hospital, literally. So we don't eat those plants, but plants that have less and less oxalate, and on the high end of the ones we think are edible is something like rhubarb. Rhubarb, beet greens, Swiss chard, sorrel, purslane, and spinach. Those are examples of leafy plants that are really, really high in oxalate and make a lot of it. Now plants, all kinds of plants make oxalate. Trees, some families of oxalate are, are use more oxalate for more reasons metabolically and really need it for their health and their basic function and survival. Plants are thought to have about half dozen reasons for making oxalate. So what the plant does is create, oftentimes the plant will create vitamin C and convert that into oxalic acid. Now, oxalic acid is a two carbon acid that has four oxygen molecules on it. That is a very small compound. But what it does, because it has these two OH groups, it drops an H and always has a negative charge. And then when it has an opportunity, if there's a strong reason to do it, it'll let go of that other H, which are the acid molecules and becomes a chelator very quickly. It grabs something that has a positive charge, like a lot of the minerals, sodium, potassium, magnesium, calcium, iron, right? So in nature, we see 
oxalic acid being turned into crystals. So the plants will deliberately turn oxalic acid into crystals and use those for lots of different purposes. In trees, for example, the trees put these blocks of crystals into their bark, which makes a lot of sense because the bark is self-defense from insects. So if you're an insect and you're trying to drill a hole in a tree and you hit this solid block of diamond, basically, you're going to kind of give it a chill. <laughs> going to be really desperate insect to try to drill through that. Because if you hit also hit soluble oxalate, you could not only be damaged physically by the crystal, but then chemically damaged by the soluble oxalate. Now, the plants, the way they design these crystals, which come in all these shapes, including a rapide, which is a toothpick-shaped double-ended spear, designed to be self-defense spear, made in bundles like quivers of like 200 apiece in these plant vacuoles. And the plant can literally shoot them out. When it, the plant gets damaged, it will shoot these spears out, which can penetrate cells like two cells deep in a soft mucosal membrane like our mouth. I don't know how the insects handle that, but we don't handle that very well. That's part of why Diffenbachia sends you to the hospital, because those rapide crystals are defense weapons on the part of plants. I like to think of plants as actually having invented war. <laughs> they, they knew how to build a spear before we did. And the way they do that is so cool because they lay out this scaffolding of peptides and proteins. And you see the calcium oxalate sticks to proteins and amino acids. So by laying out these amino acids in a certain way, you can shape how the crystals come together and form a crystal shape. And you, as a plant, you can create different kinds of tips, grooves in your barbs, and all kinds of shapes and cool things. It's amazing. Now, the plants will also use oxalate to do things like make peroxide, because it can turn oxalic acid into peroxide. It also uses oxalic acid to store calcium. So those crystals are not only weapons or self-defense, they are a way to pantry calcium. And if you're a seed, you need that calcium to germinate. It helps to activate enzymes that drive that germination process. So it's a great way to store calcium. It's also a way to kind of control calcium because too much calcium for some plants is quite toxic. So it's another way to kind of manage calcium, kind of like bones. We use bones as a place to store calcium and then we'll steal the calcium and other minerals out of our bones if we need it. And plants do that same thing. In fact, desert plants need oxalate especially so because plants have to breathe CO2 and then they produce oxygen during photosynthesis, right? So to breathe CO2, you have to have your little lungs open and the lungs on a plant are the stoma under the leaves. But if you're a desert plant and you have your stoma open during the hot, dry day, you'll dry up and you'll just become crepe paper. You know, you can't hold on to your moisture with your stoma open. So during the day, the plant can break down the oxalate, which is carbon and oxygen, turn it into CO2 and continue photosynthesis during the day when the sun is out, but there's no moisture. They breathe oxalates, sort of. Yeah, right. They produce, they, exactly. They produce their own air by storing carbon. So they're not only storing calcium as a nutrient, they're storing carbon as a nutrient. Some follow-up questions about all of that. So there are two forms of oxalates, like a soluble version that's not attached yet to things, and then the crystals where it is attached. Right. 
So we, we talk about them plural because not only are there two forms, okay, there's oxalic acid, which is basically an ion when it's a molecule that has either one or two negative charges. So there's already two kinds of ions. The one that has both H's gone and two negative charges or still hanging on to an H and has one negative charge. Then it can form a soluble bond with sodium and potassium. So those are single charged minerals and they easily disassociate from oxalate in fluid, in liquid, versus when oxalic acid and calcium or magnesium get together, calcium and magnesium have the double positive charge and that creates a much stronger bond with the oxalic acid. And those do not easily dissolve again in fluids at body temperature at normal pHs. So we call that insoluble. And that's one of the reasons why that calcium oxalate is so prominent in nutrition, in nature rather, because once it's bounded together, you need some kind of enzyme or other kind of superpower to take it back apart again pretty well. So you have to use enzymes and you have to use acids and so on to break it down. So, so the insoluble oxalates are molecules that can form into nanocrystals, which is another form, is the crystalline form, which then grow into these microcrystals, which eventually can get big enough that you can see them under a microscope provided that you know how to prepare your samples, stain it, use polarized light. And there's a lot of skill involved in even noticing crystals in tissues of plants or in, in people who are ending up with this crystal formation occurring in the body. And that's where we get into the pathology side. Like in plants, oxalate, whether soluble, whether it's the molecules or the crystals, and whether it's the, you know, the big ones or the invisible ones, the plants, they need those things. That's a sign of good health happy biology for a plant. But when we start collecting oxalate and having crystals forming in our body, that is a serious pathology that can lead to a lot of problems for us. It's pretty cool that the plants have these compounds that are both weapons and they have like nutrient source purposes. That's <laughs> pretty nifty for them. So when we eat like, cause you mentioned foods that are higher in oxalates, some questions about the amounts in foods you touched on this in the textbooks, you know, a lot of the information is just wrong. What is the, like the range of the amount of oxalates in different foods? Like if a food is considered quote high oxalate, is it typically way more oxalates than like a quote moderate or quote low oxalate food? And also within the food, do the oxalates tend to be a certain form more than another form or is it all the forms? What's going on with all of that? Yeah, so certain plants are much higher in oxalate than others. So a standard portion size, you have to think about how much oxalate is in a food. You're thinking about, well, how much of that food I'm eating as well. You know, so the the more of any food that has oxalate in it that you eat, the more oxalate you get. So it's not like it's by itself an inherent property, high or low, depending on how you're consuming it, what quantities and how you're preparing it will influence this a little bit. But the really high ones are, like we mentioned before, rhubarb and beet greens and so on. They're, they're to the point where a single serving would be, depending if you're eating them cooked, which would be appropriate for all plants, you really need to cook plants to make them semi-safe to eat. And even that isn't necessarily going to fix you, especially in oxalate, by the way. There's many, many myths around oxalate and people think, oh, you just cook it, it's gone, you're fine. Or just soak it and it's better. And actually, it might be the opposite. So. Anyway, that's just an aside. But something like a bowl of raw spinach is at least 300. But if you put it in into a smoothie, you usually use twice as much and you're getting into the seven or 800 
these are milligrams of oxalate. Now, seven or 800 milligrams of oxalate is actually quite stratospherically high. The way we define foods as either low, medium, or high, a high oxalate food, one single portion of any food, if it has 10 milligrams or more, that's considered a high oxalate food. And you said like a cup of raw spinach could have like 300? Yeah, three to 400. So you get, basically, I think it's like something like, let me think about this for a minute. I think it's like four or five milligrams per leaf of spinach of oxalate. So like you get a couple leaves and you're, you've already reached high oxalate food. So spinach and Swiss chard and beet greens are examples of like, yeah, there's, you really can't get around them in terms of their oxalate content. Chocolate and cocoa is another one. It's so high. It's very bioavailable. It's very easy to get into high doses. So a tablespoon of cocoa is something like 55 milligrams of oxalate. So you're very much in a high oxalate range. And that level of intake, if you have a meal that's about 50 and above, your potential, if it's highly absorbed, which there's a whole other conversation about that, but as long as it's absorbed, which it it just floats into your body, it doesn't need a special permission to get in, (laughs) it just gets in there passively. That's enough to raise blood oxalate levels high enough and raise oxalate levels in the urine where it ultimately has to come out of the body, that's considered really a dangerous dose already, just a tablespoon of cocoa. Wow. You said it was an aside, but I actually am curious about it. So cooking and soaking, does cooking break it down at all? And you said soaking might actually make it worse. Right, right. So with cooking, we got all different kinds of methods of of cooking or, or heating foods. And the one way you might be able to use a cooking technique to sometimes lower the amount of soluble oxalate is boiling. If you boil something long enough, like broccoli, a lot of greens and so on, if you boil them long enough, which is basically meaning you turn them to almost mush, you can, if you throw out the water, leach out some of that soluble oxalate. Remember I said the soluble oxalate will break apart in water. And as you break down the cell walls and plants that can come out of the plant and into the water. So you can reduce in broccoli about a third to a half of the oxalate and bring broccoli from kind of medium down into pretty reasonable amount of oxalate. So a reasonable portion of broccoli is quite low if you've boiled it. But if you're sauteing it or flash, you know, roasting it in the oven or or something like that, you're not changing the oxalate content because you're not using water to leach it out. Now, steaming will sometimes leach out a tiny amount because of the hydration effects where you're leaching. So that's the one way you can use cooking. But otherwise, you can't cook food hot enough to destroy oxalate crystals, which is a big portion of the insoluble oxalate are these crystals, which you don't really absorb in your gut, but they just tumble along in there and irritate your gut with physical, mechanical damage, but also kind of an electromagnetic damage too. So the crystals, you can't really get rid of them very well, unless sometimes juicing and sometimes juicing makes it worse. Like there's not always an easy answer because there's so many little details in terms of the specific plant material, what kind of oxalates they have, which we don't have a thorough cataloging of what kind of crystals, how much of it is crystals, how much is nanocrystals, how much of it is this or that because that would take a tremendous amount of research because each food is coming from a natural source, which varies from variety to variety, soil to soil, year to year. There's just like every human being is unique snowflake. Every 
harvest of blackberries is somewhat unique. So you're going to see a level of variability where we take a tremendous amount of testing and a lot of money and a lot of interest from science and somebody willing to fund it to really have a thorough and detailed understanding of all of those levels of petty details. But we don't really need that much to benefit from what we do know about the science and to recognize that oxalate can be causing us trouble. With soaking, you're activating, right? You're turning on the germination process with soaking. You're trying to undo the phytic acid and and make the indigestible seed more digestible because seeds are designed to not be digested. They're designed to be tolerating consumption but surviving the digestive tract so that the seed comes out the other end all fertilized and happy and ready to go. So we activate by we take away that dormancy stage and make things a young, tender sprout wannabe. And that is now turning on the need for that calcium for the germination process. So the plant may be starting to break down the crystals and turning it into soluble oxalate. So you're releasing insoluble oxalate that you may not have absorbed from seeds by soaking, potentially converting some of it to soluble oxalate, which is now the ion form, which is more easily floats into your bloodstream and starts chelating calcium and things in your blood. So Activating or soaking, it, if it, the food is already high in oxalate, could make it more bioavailable and make it therefore technically, you know, in practice, it's like raising the oxalate level by doing that. So clarification about that. So if you took in the unactivated form that wasn't broken down by the germination, by the soaking, would it be in like a crystal form? And then it gets broken down. If you take in the broken down form and it chelates with your minerals, does it then take your minerals and then on top of that, it's formed into a new crystal form? Well over 90% of all the oxalate you're absorbing is the soluble ions, right? The little ions are the individual molecules that are with the negative charge. That's a reactive molecule and it gets into your bloodstream very easily. And there, if there's calcium and iron and magnesium hanging around, the two of them will get together at some point, whether it happens in the blood or it happens after it gets into a cell somewhere else is a whole bunch of terrain issues and a whole bunch of situational issues. And it ends up being very idiosyncratic in different people and how much binding and stealing of the calcium from the blood is going on. But you see it in chronic or excuse me, acute poisonings, especially when it's something that's a precursor of oxalate like uh, people try to commit suicide with ethylene glycol. Ethylene glycol is turned into oxalate in the liver of the body. So the liver starts releasing oxalate into the tissues. And people often get a lot of neurological symptoms. They start getting Bell's palsy and crazy spasms and tremors. And sometimes they just have a stroke or something and die or have a heart attack. That Those kinds of things with oxalic acid poisoning or from a precursor like ethylene glycol, it's often the heart attack that takes them out. And that's because a quick lowering of the calcium in the blood is disturbing the electrolyte balance that is required for the pacemaker to work, for the heartbeat to be maintained. Yeah, that was one of my questions from the beginning when you said it's often the cause of unexplained early deaths. When that does happen, is it normally things like that, like the calcium and pacemakers, or are there a lot of just conditions that, and nobody's realizing that it's oxalate? Yeah, nobody's re- really recognizing. Oxalate is is like the ultimate 
bad guy. Like somebody should be writing Nancy Drew novels and, you know, really cool mystery novels. Cause it is this mystery. It has tricked us. It is sort of happening under the radar of our awareness in science. Science is in the recent half decade, half century or so, science has really only been paying attention to the crystal forming in the kidneys because we're peeing out oxalate all the time. Every day you're peeing out oxalate. And for some people that can start getting oxalate crystals can start getting stuck in the tubules, start sticking to each other, sticking in the kidney and becomes a kidney stone. And that is an obvious event that you can't deny. (laughs) They go in there and they cut it out or they blast it out. And usually when that happens, that person ends up getting more kidney stones because the oxalate will stick on cells that are injured. So if you blow up a diamond crystal in the kidneys with lipotripsy or something, you actually create some shrapnel there that's going to continue and cause additional damage, which is already getting started from the oxalate itself. So the oxalate ions and the little nanocrystals that form are already creating tissue damage in the kidneys. And that tissue damage brings in inflammation. And that situation of damaged tissue creates tissues that are more prone for oxalate sticking to them. Because, you know, every cell has proteins in the membrane. And proteins are made of amino acids. And amino acids are sticky to calcium and calcium oxalate. So if a cell isn't healthy, It can be the proteins on a cell or a cell fragment, a dead or dying cell that can stick there. The oxalate crystal can stick on those membrane fragments and there is no cell there to defend itself. There's, there's not a, you have to wait for the immune system to come in and address it. So you've, that is a trigger event that starts a new deposit. Whenever an oxalate molecule gets stuck somewhere in the body, that starts a new deposit. We call that trigger. And that's what I was saying about that cocoa dose. That tablespoon of cocoa is enough oxalate to trigger new deposits in the body. And then when you go down to eating just, say, meals of 40 milligrams instead of 60 or less, you, you've got enough oxalate continually flowing in. It doesn't sound like much, but that's enough to maintain that deposit and make it hard for the body to clear it. Now, other tissues that tend to get these sticky to oxalate, it's not just the damaged tissue or inflamed tissue, but also regenerating tissue. Well, usually damaged tissue is regenerating, like it's trying to heal itself. And that's the other thing that's sticky about these cells to oxalate is that regenerating tissue has a lot of glycoproteins, and that's the carbohydrate molecules sticking to the protein molecules that are part of the cell's recognition process, part of the cell communication process with that kind of like sugar hair, kind of like cells have like cotton candy on them. (laughs) That's the way they know each other. And they actually use those sugar molecules to climb along actin fibers and along and move around. So when you build a new cell, sometimes you're building a cell, say over here, and you've got to put it into place when, as it's maturing and that movement of a new regenerating cell requires those glycoproteins. So anyway, that sticky sugar is sticky to oxalate too. So both an injured tissue and inflamed tissue, as well as the regenerating tissue, they're all prone and vulnerable to oxalate that you are absorbing from your food, getting hung up in those tissues. So a high oxalate diet can lead to poor recovery from injury, poor recovery from surgery, very slow recovery, or old injuries that just kind of linger in small ways for a long, long time. This is a super naive question, but just to clarify for kidney stones, 
So are all kidney stones from oxalate? Is there anything else that can cause kidney stones? Yeah, there's infectious stones, styruvate stones, there's potentially urate stones, but kidney stones are primarily calcium oxalate. About 80% of all kidney stones are uh, made mostly of oxalate. Okay. And because the kidneys are responsible for filtering all of this, and you mentioned all of the other places in the body that oxalates can attach to and create a buildup, like can a person have kidney stones and it's just in the kidneys and not anywhere else in the body? Or is it like if they have kidney stones, does that indicate they probably have buildup everywhere? Or is there not really like a relation? Yeah, that's a really great, great question. I wish science wanted to answer that question. <laughs> it is my it is my feeling that kidney stones are an example of a way that oxalates cause damage and collect in the body. And not everybody who is collecting oxalate in their body gets kidney stones. That is for sure a, a known fact in science. I believe that if you're if you're getting kidney stones, you are definitely having stressed kidneys and you are definitely collecting oxalates. So I think there's very few people who are getting kidney stones of the classic calcium stone. They call it calcium, by the way. They don't tell the patient that it's oxalate stone. They don't call it a calcium oxalate stone or an oxalate stone. They call it a calcium stone. Instead, everyone's blaming calcium and calcium is all scary now and supplements are supposed to kill you. And it's nonsense. Oxalate has stolen a really, really valuable nutrient. It's stolen it from your bones and your blood and is turned it into a hoodlum and making it dangerous in the body. And the doctors are calling that calcium, but it's actually kidnapped calcium. <laughs> it's not calcium doing it. Oxalate's what's empowering calcium to become a toxin. So when that does happen, because of the intricate relationship with calcium, how does it affect in general, calcium stores or calcium blood levels potentially. Like for example, I was asking for questions and Marianne said, this is actually a good example of people don't associate oxalates with calcium, but she says, I don't know about oxalates, but I had kidney stones for years and my doctor ignored as unimportant that my serum calcium levels were elevated. Is it usually the opposite though? Yeah, it is. It's usually the opposite though. But it often, you're not going to see changes in calcium oxalate with oxalate toxicity normally because the bones are such a huge store of calcium that what it does is it turns on the parathyroid glands, which tells you to break down your bone tissue. So you may have a slow brewing osteopenia coming along like I did because you're eating all this Swiss chard and sweet potatoes like I was and just sucking the minerals from your bones and constantly breaking them down. So you don't, you don't see many problems in blood. Now, the high calcium in her blood may suggest kidney stress, that her kidneys weren't able to move calcium out, extra calcium, or some other metabolic stress going on where the parathyroid gland may be overdoing it a little bit and releasing too much calcium from the bones. But anyone with high blood calcium should be concerned about their bones. She found out she had hyperparathyroidism. So that would be why. Okay. But you see, the oxalates turn on the parathyroid glands a lot. and activates the immune system. So it's quite possible that an overworked parathyroid gland could end up with kind of a immune issue because it's so overactive and could, who knows, it could even be a spot for calcium oxalate to start collecting because the oxalate can get anywhere, anywhere. I mean, there's really no place in the body that it doesn't go. Just to drive home the point you just made about the bones, I can see how this would be 
like you said, osteopenia, osteoporosis, because I recently had on the Caltons who wrote Rebuild Your Bones on the show, and we were talking about blood calcium levels, and they were saying how, you know, it's so, so rare to see blood calcium levels that are not normal because the body is so good at pulling calcium out of our bones. So I could see how if we're eating a high oxalate diet and that's binding to our calcium, you could, I mean, be doing great damage pulling your calcium. I mean, it, the oxalates would be binding to your calcium. Then you'd have to be pulling calcium out of your bones, but you probably wouldn't ever be aware of that because blood calcium is usually like, it's not usually normal for most people. Yeah. You're not going to, you're not going to find a lot in the blood. The blood in my view is the river of perfection because the blood is what keeps everybody communicating and alive. So the, every other body tissue will sacrifice for the sake of healthy blood to keep the heart working because no tissue is any good whatsoever if there's no heart or if the kidneys fail. So the other tissues will take second fiddle and service the needs of the vital organs as much as they possibly can. So the bones take second place and make sure the heart is going to keep beating. Sensible. Wait, what did you call it? The river of perfection? Yeah, the river of perfection. You... you we go diving into the bloodstream because it's convenient. We have needles and we've developed tests for blood and we say that's the basis of deciding health and disease. To me, that's insane. That's just evidence that science and medicine has moved towards science and away from biology. You know that old story about the drunk guy who's lost his keys and he, he lost him down the block, but he goes looking for it under the street lamp because that's what he can see? That's what we do in blood testing, urine testing. I mean, we can get to those tissues without invading someone's body. The only way to really know if you have, well, not the only way, but technically in science, the gold standard way of finding out if you have oxalate accumulation is to take a chip of bone out of your hip and then examine the bone tissue. Now that is very invasive. No doctor is going to order that test. And even then, you're prone to false negatives where you chose the wrong piece of bone and you missed where the crystals are hanging out. So it's crystals you're looking for in the bone. Yes, because oxalate loves calcium and calcium loves oxalate. So the bones are a magnet for oxalate. And some people will collect oxalate in their bone marrow. Now, what is bone marrow doing for us? Well, it's building blood. It's building white blood cells, red blood cells. Like It's really important tissue. What if your immune system is born in oxalate-loaded marrow? You bore immune cells that are already damaged with mitochondrial stress. Then you eat a spinach smoothie because you don't feel good and you're trying to get healthy, and you then damage your mitochondria in your white blood cells in your circulation. Then you have crystals in your kidney and your white blood cells show up to try to help that problem, and they're already been dinged twice with oxalate at birth and oxalate during transition time in the circulatory system. So it really gets you at really basic places. So when I asked for questions about the oxalates, Pasha said, how to prevent stones, how to minimize the likelihood of them coming back if they're already there. And then a lot of questions about getting rid of them, because it seems like there can be problems in the in the clearing process. So Allison said, how do you clear oxalates from your body before they build up and create stones? And Sharon said, how do you go slowly as to not over dump or purge oxalates? Like, is that a problem? Like she says, is there a way to slow it down if you do start to dump? Does it matter how many oxalates you have in your tissues as to how you go about cleaning house? Because there's definitely this 
idea out there of dumping. And I think a lot of people, especially in the low carbon carnivore world experience this. So preventing the stones. And then when you do have them, can you just stop eating oxalates? Will they go away? If you just stop eating them, do you need to actively try to get rid of them? And then on top of that, can they, if you go too fast, will you suffer issues? It's a lot. It's a lot. So that's like 15 questions. So we'll try to try to keep circling back so we make sure we hit all those points. And a lot of people don't realize, okay, so oxalate, overdoing oxalate in our diets, which is so easy to do because we all grow up on peanut butter and whole wheat, this and that. So the, the brand's really high. So let's go back real quick. Like if you're suspecting oxalates, the first risk factor for oxalate accumulating in your body is that you've been eating the heck out of them either intensely recently or just generally in your life. So if you're into like lemon poppy seed cake. Well, poppy seed's really high and so is the rind of citrus fruit. So lemon rind is high and we put that in the lemon desserts, right? And hemp and tahini from the sesame seeds, almonds, cashews, peanuts, pine nuts. These are all really high foods. So if you've been picking out on nut butters and keto bread and stuff, you are probably somebody to really pay attention to this discussion. We talked about some of the greens the sweet potatoes, a lot of white potatoes are pretty high, although the red potatoes aren't too bad if you boil them and eat them in modest quantities. But mostly what we eat are the high russet and Idaho potatoes that we use to make chips and French fries, baked potatoes and mashed potatoes are often made with the really high oxalate potatoes. So I find in my client base that an awful lot of my kidney stone folks were or are potato chip freaks. Like they have this sort of addiction of potato chips or into potatoes with every meal. So if you have that background, you want to be paying attention. If you happen to like cactus, that's really crazy. One of those desert plants that's high in oxalate, right? Have you had that before, by the way, cactus? I used to use cactus. You can buy it pickled kind of in a jar. And I used to use it on my salads. What does it taste like? It's a little bit slimy. I don't know. Don't try it. <laughs> Don't try. Don't try. But it's so crazy. Like you could get into some little weird thing like that and just pile on oxalates because you just don't know these things. And this isn't easy knowledge to get. There aren't good lists out there. And so people don't know that that's what's happening. I had no idea. Like, oh, my little cactus thing. I thought I was kind of unique and interesting. But no, that's not a good idea either. And then there's like plantain chips. They're all the rage right now. Who knows why? But it's a little bit novel. And people love chips. And now we've basically moved to a snacking culture. And when I was a kid, a million years ago, we sat down to meals. And my mother would say, don't eat that. We're going to have dinner in half an hour. Just wait. You know, like there was this definite eating times and not eating times. And it was like, hey, the kitchen's closed. Quit making a mess. We're done eating. <laughs> but now everything's in a convenience store in a little bag for us package. And so we're really, we're quite comfortable now with eating, say, sweet potato chips and root chips, plantain chips, banana chips, all that stuff is really high in oxalate. And then there's anything made with beans and soy is high. And then there's like pseudo grains, buckwheat. I have a friend who died pretty young. He was eating buckwheat every day for years for breakfast. He liked it. I don't know why, but he liked it. And then there's quinoa, which not only has oxalate, but has saponins and other gut destroying chemicals in it. I used to love teff and used to sometimes make teff for breakfast with just a little bit of cocoa in it. It was like, do you remember like cocoa wheats? That was like a 
cooked breakfast cereal. Teff made, I thought, the healthy version of that. No, not good. So, and then there's dark tea, black tea and green teas and chocolates and then certain spices. So if if you are a person who did those things or do, then you definitely have been putting yourself in harm's way with pretty high oxalate foods. So that's just the background to these questions of, all right, if I've had a kidney stone, what do I do about that? How do I not get the next one? How do I clear the ones I have now? What about the rest of my body? How do I clear that? So if crystals of oxalate have been forming in your tissues, they're probably in places where you've had inflammation, where you've had injury, where something you use a lot, say if you type all day, and then you, the thing is, one, one other point about, oh, there's a million points, right? <laughs> we need oxalate during the day, not when we're sleeping. And so it takes a while for them to be absorbed. There's like this eight hour period after a high oxalate meal. You know, the spinach smoothie for breakfast, the fries at lunchtime, and then the sweet potato, whatever, at dinner. Each of those meals introduce at least a six, eight, 10 hour period of oxalate being absorbed from the digestive tract, right? So they're overlapping. So lunch piles on to whatever breakfast had. And then if you have a little Kit Kat bar or something in the afternoon, there's a little more chocolate or worse, you know, something like the peanut butter cup. And then you have dinner. And so they keep kind of adding on top of each other. And by the time you're going to bed, your oxalate levels in your blood and your kidneys and so on are at their highest, right? But bedtime is when you're supposed to be healing from your day's activities. Sleeping is, is the centerpiece of good health because sleep is when tissue repair happens. But if there's oxalates running around those tissues during the night, then that tissue recovery is not very effective. And so you can end up with carpal tunnel syndrome and, you know, various supposed overuse problems. It's not about the overuse. It's about the fact that during the night, your body didn't have whatever it needed, which would be low toxicity and high nutrients to recover and heal the day's activities. So if you've got anything like that, any aches and pains, arthritis, back aches, memory problems, brain fog, fatigue, that kind of thing, then that's a sign that you have symptoms that could be related to too much oxalate in the diet. So then there's the kidney stone. Now, kidney stone is the obvious oxalate illness. And even that, your doctor tells you it's a calcium stone, sadly. So the body and healthy kidneys put out a ton of these proteins that, remember, proteins stick to calcium oxalate and vice versa. So the body puts out these proteins to prevent the crystals from clumping. And people who get kidney stones are people who don't really make enough of those proteins and who also aren't putting out enough citric acid or citrate. Citrate also is a calcium chelator and binds to those crystals and creates a little coat that prevents them from getting clumpy. And you can increase your citrates in your urine by having basically more alkaline urine. And one easy way to do that is to eat citrate. So citric acid from lemon and citric acid supplements, calcium citrate, potassium citrate, magnesium citrate, that citrate turns into bicarb in the liver. And that bicarb then helps the pH go up a little bit. And the better pH like that will allow the kidneys to put out more citrate. So you eat citrate to put citrate in your urine. And that citrate is very good at breaking down crystals. It also is very protective of the kidneys in the same way that those proteins are. So if you're a kidney stone 
type person, you, you can't rely on those proteins that you should be making to prevent the stones. You have to rely on citrate. It's really important that you use lemons or citric acid or other ways of alkalizing to increase citrate in the urine. And often that works great in the context of a low oxalate diet. That won't work if you're still eating a lot of oxalates, right? Now, so when we are eating oxalates, we could be eating in what I call the danger zone level, where it's way overwhelming day in and day out, where most of your meals are really high. You're doing keto bread or chocolate or something. I mean, there's enough of these foods, even though it's a fairly small subset of foods that are high oxalate, they're common and praised and beloved enough and easy. It's easy to get hung up on the same foods like the potato chips that you could be really in that danger zone. Like doing more than a, about a thousand milligrams a day is definitely in this really dangerous place where it's causing a lot of inflammation and stress in the body and you're on your way to having an autoimmune disease. Now, if you come out of danger zone, you can come down into like just trigger zone. I'm just having 50 milligrams with a meal with a chocolate here and there. That's still a fairly, you have to be really aware of your food to be able to bring it down into trigger zone. And then you can bring it down in what we call maintenance zone where you're eating just a little bit all the time and that prevents the clearing. It's when you go really zero, like when you go on a carnivore diet, you're cutting out all the plants. So you're totally going to almost a zero oxalate diet. That is a dramatic shift in your metabolism from one that is sequestering and defending and trying to deal and cope, which is a whole different set of metabolic talents, to one that's now like, ooh, oh my gosh, we're finally getting a break. Ooh, ooh, we can clean up this mess. So it, it takes, you know, at least five days for a lot of cells to develop new superpowers to start attracting this process of elimination. But you really don't want a whole lifetime of spinach and almonds and potatoes and peanuts to suddenly shake loose and come out all at once. You will overwhelm your kidneys, your bloodstream and feel sicker and potentially provoke kidney stones during the clearing process. So this is the weird part about this. You may be making yourself sick on high oxalate food and have no symptoms of it at all. You start avoiding oxalate and suddenly you get symptoms and you feel worse because now you're auto intoxicating from inside. Yeah. Like Stephanie said, if you go carnivore, they blame almost every symptom of just about anything on oxalate dumping. Some say it can go on for years. Yes, it can. I have a back right now that looks bruised. It's now the, the, it's, it started with tenderness a couple of weeks ago and these swollen red pads that looked all rashy, almost like a rug burn on the surface that turned into these deep I really look like I've been beaten up and then they turn <laughs> dark brown. And now that skin that turned dark brown is now peeling and underneath there's more of these coming up. And I believe that this is my back healing. And we, maybe if we have time, we can get into why this is happening now, but I am seven years on this diet and I have a spine that's quite deteriorated. It's got, it's got Schmerl's nodes, which are holes and pits in the vertebral bodies and lots of bulging discs and probably calcified ligaments and ligament stiffness and you know ligament is too big I can't really backbend very well without a lot of pain and I had back pain for freaking ever and I I believe I'm at a stage where I'm starting to get some healing in the vertebral bones and that's what this bruising is coming from do you know if like degenerative discs ever relate to this yes yes there's a handful just a few articles in the medical literature showing that 
they can they find crystals in gen, degenerating discs, and they the authors believe it's a major cause of disc degeneration. Yep. Wow, my mom really struggles with that, so I'm really thinking of her right now. Mom, listen to this. <laughs> yeah, mom, call. it's it's sad for us old gals to be you know trying to fix our backs at this stage. You know, it would have been nice if I'd known this as a ten year old. You know, and you know, young moms. What we eat in pregnancy and what we feed our children really have long-term ramifications. The cool part, though, is that I do work with the old gals. We're, you know, a lot of us who finally fall apart and are figuring this out. We're in our late forties, fifties, sixties, seventies, and beyond. And I truly believe that life doesn't quit. Life is reaching for itself, no matter how old you are. And healing is possible. We just have to whisper into biology and listen to it and let it take the lead and learn how to support it, not overwhelm it, and not try to provoke it to do things we want to make it do, but learn how to work with it to turn back on stem cells, turn back on that healing ability, and somehow make it gentle and kind. This is not a race. You cannot race your way out of toxicity. You have to drip your way out of it and take the 10 years that it takes to recover from this. Wow. So for a listener listening, if they suspect they have oxalate issues or oxalate overload, do doctors do urinary tests? Like, is that something that you should even do? Should listeners just, if they suspect it, just try a low oxalate diet? Yeah. The urine is very different than the blood. Like the way, the, one of the reasons why the blood stays so even and perfect is because the urine is never the same thing twice. Like it's so dynamic. There's so many compounds and chemicals and so much changing going on in the urine because the kidneys are a major metabolic control mechanism. Like they're doing a lot for the whole body and they're constantly cleaning things up and balancing things, keeping your pH right, keeping your levels of electrolytes right as best as it can with what you're giving it to work with. So the urine is very dynamic and variable place. So one of the research studies I looked at was saying that really in order to even guess at the mean of oxalate in the urine, you'd need nine tests to do that. It's very easy to get a false negative because the kidneys excrete oxalate in peaks. Two or three urines a day might be super off the charts high and the rest of them will be super low. So a spot test is especially prone to that variability problem where it's easy to look like there's nothing there when there is. But if you ever see cloudy urine and you see that frequently, then that could be crystals in the urine that are, you know, refracting light and giving it that cloudy appearance. And people think of it as, oh, it might be bacteria. It could be an excess amount of cells shedding. So it doesn't always work with kidney stone people because the tubules will strip their cells. When there's too many crystals there, one way it gets rid of the crystals that are sticking is it just sheds whole layers of cells. So you can get cloudy urine just because your kidneys are stressed and they're shedding cells, but that's still a sign that your kidneys are uber unhappy. You shouldn't have mucky urine. So it's almost better rather than try to get nine tests and convince your doctor that he should look at oxalate because oxalate is not usually normal thing to test for. They have only recently started to say, oh, crystalline urine or turbid urine. They'll mention that in the urine analysis, but you have to specifically request an oxalate analysis. That's an additional expense. So you're almost better off learning more about oxalate so that you can just gauge it with your diet. You can do your own challenge tests at home, although I don't recommend that you quit oxalate and then start adding them in randomly. But I, you know, we got to get back to the question of how do you control the release from the diet? Because that's a place where you do want to really finesse how much oxalate you're eating, which is an interesting little process. 
Yeah. So what is that process? Okay. So the test, before we get into that, the, if you have not gone carnivore and gone on the zero oxalate diet, or even tried to reduce your oxalates yet, you don't want to start by going to carnivore. I happen to agree with the carnivore world that if you got a lot of problems on carnivore, oxalate is the most likely reason. And it, it can be like being a voodoo doll, like somebody has randomly giving you symptoms that come and go that involve your nervous system, your connective tissues, inflammation, histamines, rashes, headaches, a bad day in terms of being grumpy or just uncoordinated, aches and pains that come and go, tooth pain, you name it, sinus pain, migraines, it's all can be oxalates, no question about it. So if you go from a high oxalate diet and move to a low oxalate diet, usually something a little weird will happen. You might get a funky little rash you've never seen before or start getting eye styes or get achy teeth or the tartar suddenly goes away because saliva concentrates the oxalate about 10 times higher than the blood level. So if you've been eating a lot of oxalate, you may be a person who tends to get tooth tartar. And when you start the low oxalate diet, usually that goes away and then it'll come and go depending on how much oxalate is back in the blood because your tissues start releasing it back into the blood. So tooth tartar, cloudy urine, aches and pains, mood, those are all signs one way or the other, whether you're moving oxalates or not after you're on a low oxalate diet. Okay. So now if they get out of control, those kind of clearing illnesses, I call it clearing illness. Susan Owens is a brilliant woman who's been working with families with autistic kids for quite a while now. And she is really the first one to say, hey, these funny symptoms that we start getting on this diet that these poor kids were getting with crazy rashes, sudden behavior things that are weird, where the autistic kids do really well on low oxide diet. Great many of them start regaining their ability to communicate, their ability to self-direct an activity, to be by themselves and be able to be safe. You know, they really do well on it. But they'll have these rashes and just some pretty severe clearing illness. And Susan realized that this is the body clearing the oxalate, and she's the one who dubbed it dumping. It's not yet used in the medical world because the medical world believes that this crystal accumulation in the body only occurs when there's kidney failure. It only occurs when the kidneys stop working permanently. But the medical literature will tell you that after every high oxalate meal, that is kidney failure. For a certain period after high oxalate meal, your kidneys cannot keep up. That's what kidney failure means, is the kidneys cannot keep up with the load that they're being asked to deal with. So high oxalate diet keeps you in kind of quasi-permanent kidney failure. But a lot of us, like me, we have super strong kidneys that never get into problems. I can pee out gallons of cloudy urine all the time and pee out crystals like crazy, and I've never had a kidney symptom or kidney stone. I don't, I just produce enough of these proteins that protect me from this, the accumulation. The downside of being good at peeing out oxalate is you've turned on these proteins all the time. And some of these proteins, one in particular is probably the reason I have fibromyalgia symptoms. That fibrosis process is an oxalate issue. And these proteins encourage that fibrotic problem that gives you all that muscle pain and other problems that go along with fibromyalgia. So this is one reason why men who tend to get kidney stones don't get fibromyalgia, but the women who are high in oxalate that don't get kidney stones are probably the ones that are prone to this achiness and 
muscle problems and connective tissue problems. Maybe it's too simplistic to think about it this way, but fibromyalgia, it just seems like something that this would cause. It's a compound literally, you know, building up everywhere. Yeah. And so that when that tissue damage, those crystals collecting in the body and just the ions there all the time creates cellular damage. It damages membranes. So the membranes have a certain structure that gets completely disorganized when kidney, when oxalate ions and crystals are nearby. But you literally end up killing cells. The mitochondria get damaged and die, and then cells start dying. And so what the body has to do to replace the damage is create connective tissue to hold it together. That's called scar tissue or fibrosis. So any fibrotic disease where scar tissue starts filling in for where you used to have real cells, which is probably part of what's going on in my spine with the ligament. Is that a really long process to undo in a way? It probably depends on the tissues involved and how far progressed it is. Because you need to have like stem cell and chondrocytes and osteoblasts and the right cells available to start rebuilding tissue and breaking down connective tissue. Now to break fibrosis, you have to put out enzymes, which is what the immune system does. So the immune system comes along either to eat the crystals and that can be a frustrated problem. And that's actually why oxalate crystals can start an immune condition of the lungs or any other tissue. You can get into an immune condition because the crystals are hard to deal with. They're too big for one monocyte to eat. So then they get together and they form giant cells, like five or 10 of these cells try to eat it and work on it. And that doesn't work. So then the cells will start bombing it with enzymes to break down the proteins that are around the crystal, which kind of works. And you can sometimes break up the crystals that way and then shooting out acid. But if you're putting out collagenase enzymes, you're not just breaking down crystals, you're breaking down cells. So there's friendly fire involved in the immune system going in and cleaning out crystals. So that's why we get this kind of autoimmune illness that persists for years. Every time we're clearing out crystals, whether it's the kidney or elsewhere, you're turning on the immune system. And even before you got there to the point clearing, during the building up process, this constant presence of crystals causing cell damage turns on the immune system chronically. Oxalate is the most likely, if you realize your biology, it's the most likely, most common, most prolifically available chemical that we're exposed to that's turning on the immune system chronically. That is huge. Yeah, actually yesterday I was interviewing Dr. Benjamin Bickman for his book, Why We Get Sick. And he was talking about that, about how like macrophages and how everything that's like an enzyme or breaking down things when there's some sort of infection or injury basically is, you know, an activation of the immune system. That's really a huge concept. What you just said that oxalates may be the one source that, or chemical or what's well, not a chemical. Yeah, it is. It is a chemical. It is. It is this particulate matter, like nanocrystals are particles and they're also chemicals depending on whether they're ions or not. And you know, we're eating it all the time. Our immune system problems are just all over. Everybody seems to have an immune system problem now. So you asked about does the fibrosis and scar tissue go away and how fast it can be. I can tell you what one of the great things about the diet is all kinds of superficial scars get flatter and hard to notice. The low oxalate diet naturally allows your body to go back and fix old scar tissue and so on. The deeper the tissue, the more extensive the damage probably that restricts how much, how far the recovery can go. But you definitely, if you give it a good five years and you're consistent with it, you'll see scar tissue and scars 
really reverse. Those of us who've been really sick with oxalate, we feel much older than we really are. I've been in my 80s since I was 19. But now I feel like I'm in my 30s and I'm going to be 57 next spring. So (laughs) the low oxalate diet is my personal fountain of youth. And that includes the scar tissue, that includes regaining the ability to exercise, to think, to function, to be happy. It's it's great to not be poisoned or to unpoison myself. I'm still in this unpoisoning process. And like I said, my back looks like I've been beat up, but my life is working again. And I wish that for anybody who doesn't feel well. This is so incredible. So for listeners, you talked about the potentials of if somebody starts a carnivore diet or cuts out all oxalates that they might experience that dumping. So is there a pathway or approach that you recommend that most people can safely follow to remove oxalates? You mentioned like a test, a tolerance test. You want to let your metabolism adjust to any change in diet, no matter what's going on. So if you're planning a dramatic change in your diet, you want to ease into it as best as as practical as you can do. It's not, you're not a machine who can go, oh, I'll do 15% of this today and 5% tomorrow. It's like, that's not practical, but find a practical way to ease out of these foods. For for one thing, regardless of the oxalate issue, your microbiome in your digestive tract is used to a certain set of foods. And you're going to shift which bacteria are happy. You don't want to create a big die-off by starving off all your current guys that quickly. So just for that practical side, you do that. But also with the foods that are high in oxalate, you may want to just cut out most of them and leave a couple of them in your diet kind of the way you've been eating them for at least a little while. I call this kind of the lazy way. And I think of it, the reason I know it works is because husbands take this route. The wife decides she's going to change their diet, right? And so she changes what she buys and prepares for meals because usually women are still the ones planning food and deciding what we're going to eat. And and usually men are happy if someone fills a plate, they'll help them empty the plate. Like, so it's sort of easy to let your, someone else change most of the foods. And then you hang on to your little secret potato chip thing, your little secret chocolate or your little peanut butter snack at night, because you are not going to be controlled by your lover. Right. And that's a good way to hang on to a couple things. So you can, most people are slow to let go of chocolate. So hang on to the chocolate for a little while, hang on to that little bit of peanut butter or whatever it is you do, and then get rid of you know the Swiss chard. You, I promise you, life is okay without Swiss chard. Somebody who's been growing it for decades, I'm doing just dandy without it. So you, there are certain high oxalate foods like eh, buckwheat. Really, I think you can give up the soba noodles or whatever it is, right? So that's the easy way to start: is get out of the danger zone, stay in maintenance zone, keep a few around. So every day you've got a little oxalate. Now, when you get serious, we want to bring you down into a zone of probably about 20 milligrams per meal, which might be a clementine, a cup of tea, a plate of carrots, you know, some kind of more moderate foods that will bring you a little bit of oxalate per meal. That will, again, there's still some coming in and that is telling the body, oh, we're still eating oxalate. So it's not pure winter, like carnivore is a winter diet. Where, you know, I think of oxalate as in the past, if we ever ate high oxalate food, it was for brief periods, like when the blackberries came ripe or such and such came ripe or while we had harvested some grains, which, you know, you knock a few into your canoe and you keep them for a few months and then you move on to back to hunting buffalo or something, right? 
but now we don't have seasonality, but I think of the carnivore diet as like zero. You don't really want to be that low unless you just have a, some kind of individual situation where you're not nearly as toxic as some people and it's fine for you to go that low. So everyone is completely different in how this works out. Everyone's kind of a snowflake. There's so many factors that are affecting this, but from a safety point of view, since you really don't know how your body's going to react to this, you're better off, you know, taking your time, coming down stepwise, and then realizing when you get down where you're pretty close to, we'll call carnivore a version of a very low oxalate diet. When you're very close to that, that's when you really want to be careful and start noticing. You'll, you usually will start noticing stuff if you get out of the danger and trigger zone. That's where you start to feel better. And when you get down into the super zero is when you start provoking this release of oxalate where you start to get feeling crappy. So that whole understanding that gives you a chance to kind of test it out on yourself. If you go low oxalate and you suddenly get a rash, like, oh, 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 something's going on. If you suddenly get a toothache or a sinus pain or you're starting to get weird migraines or something, that could be part of this. You're turning on the clearing. And then if you can add some clementines or some tea or some carrots, as I was saying before, add in just a few potato chips or a little tiny bit of chocolate, you might feel a little better because you're now stopping that clearing illness. And this is why some people say, oh, I tried it for a while. Now I tolerate it and I'm fine because they've put back enough oxalate where they've stopped the clearing. So they feel better if they're not clearing the oxalate. So you, you can stop the symptoms of recovery, but you're also stopping the recovery. And you've, because people think of this as a sensitivity. This is not an allergy. This is a toxicity. It's a toxicity that creates deficiency and deficiency and toxicity is a very deadly combination when it comes to your well-being. It seems to have a lot of characteristics very unique to it compared to other things that like this is mechanically damaging your cells, building up, potentially taking years to undo the damage. So I think this is huge. It's a ringleader, really. It's because these all these things can work together against us, you know, and the more the more oxalate they have, the more those other things can be toxic. And the more you have those other things, the more oxalate can be toxic. You know, I, I sincerely believe that I created IBS for myself when I was slow cooking beans. Someone with a degree in nutrition ought to know better because lectins are preserved with that low heat cooking environment. You really need to soak beans for three days and pressure cook or use high rapid boiling high heat baking to really get beans, the lectins down in beans and make them safe. But I was silly enough to be using a slow cooker, cooking beans overnight and eating delicious mixed beans with a little bit of peanut butter and garlic in them for breakfast because it was convenient. I was a working single person and it was a way to have cheap, convenient food and keep moving and have a life, right? And it was a disaster for my GI tract. I'm still paying for that. And once you've got lectins, really creating leaky gut or anything else creating leaky gut inflammation of the gut occurs when you're obese, diabetic, metabolic syndrome, or eating a lot of plant compounds like the saponins and the lectins. Oxalate is so tiny, it's already just floating through anyway with a healthy gut. But once you've got leaky gut, the level of oxalate absorption can be 50% instead of the normal 10 to 15%. So the amount of food you need in order to get too much oxalate in your body goes down to from a tablespoon of cocoa to a half teaspoon. You know, like you're absorbing way too much of it when your gut is inflamed. Plus, 
oxalates turning on the mast cells and all the rest of the immune system and helping generate a lot of histamine and just chaos. And so all those other compounds start to become harder and harder to cope with. And a lot of that poor coping is coming secondarily to the oxalate damage. I just have one specific food question because you keep mentioning blackberries as an example. And so you've been mentioning the different foods and I've been checking to make sure that I have them listed as high in the app and everything has been matching up so far. The fruit I eat a lot of is blueberries. Right. That's a good question. That's a really good question because it's wrong on a lot of lists. And so for a long time, people thought blueberries were pretty high, but a half cup of blueberries counts as a low oxalate food. If you use a moderate portion, blueberries are fine. Of course, they're full of seeds and skin and sort of planty stuff. So if you do have a damaged gut, you may not really tolerate them that well, but they're from an oxalate standpoint, blueberries are fine. Okay. Yeah. Cause I have them and now I feel like I need to have more specific amounts for how I list them in my app. I don't have them as completely like zero, like green. People out there were saying they were high, but it seemed like they actually were low. Whenever that was the case, I would mark them as like just a little bit, just to be on the safe side. And that's right. You got it right. Okay. I eat a lot of blueberries. With all the ones that I eat though, I might be actually reaching higher levels. The thing is, you don't really want to be too over-reliant in big portions of a lot of these plant foods because blueberries, there's the little tiny wild ones from Maine, and then there's the big suckers, and there's like, I don't know, at least 20. There's low bush, high bush. There's easily 20 varieties of blueberries. And depending on where they grow and what variety, there may be some variability there. Who has spent the money to test every variety of blueberry? No, there's only been a couple of random tests couple of random years. We really don't know how variable blueberries are. Unlike strawberries are crazy variable. Like some strawberries are really low and some strawberries could have like 15 milligrams per berry of oxalate. They can be from one to 15. There's huge range there, which makes sense because oxalate helps defend plants from infections and molds and things like that. And strawberries grow on the ground on mud And they're very prone to fungal problems because of that. So in a really wet year, maybe there are a lot more oxalate in a a strawberry grown on a wet year versus a dry year. Again, we don't know, but strawberries were a point of confusion for half a century. And I still think we don't really have enough testing and enough expertise to say, what are the factors that's influencing this? Is it variety? Is it soil? Is it season? Is it weather? Is it other kinds of stress? Because when you stress the plants, they're more likely to produce more oxalate. So an infestation of insects will maybe increase oxalate levels in plants versus if you put a toxic insecticide on the plant, it may have lower oxalate. You know, <laughs> not necessarily that you want to eat blueberries that are covered in fungicides. That's what I was going to say. I was going to say, it sounds like organic produce has the potential to be higher because it's creating its own. I think a little bit that's possible. But those kind of rules of thumbs break down really quickly in reality. And it's really easy to mistake, even in the data, I've seen some really badly written medical articles and respectable journals by people with highfalutin careers who've put out garbage saying things just like that, that are like, ooh, ooh, scary. You're not even, you're scaring me with what you're saying versus what your data is saying. (laughs) But nutrition is especially prone to that. If you actually read nutrition literature and you read the methods and you read what they're doing and then you read the descriptions and conclusions, and too much of the time, 
the two don't match up at all. Like, <laughs> oh, it drives me crazy. <laughs> it's awful. Sometimes I'll like read it, and then I I just want to like look around and be like, is anybody else reading this? But it's like published, you know, in the journal. It's like the editors didn't read it, the authors didn't read it, and the readers aren't reading it, and they still have a respectable career. Because to get tenure, you just need a thick stack. It doesn't mean anyone's read your stack of papers. It just needs to look impressive from across the conference table. So listeners, do your own research. And it's hard to do. You know, I have spent six years digging up information in the library. It has been a tremendous amount of work and effort to get to the level of confidence that I have with my information and with this whole topic and looking at all the confusion over the years. And, the you know, you have to be, have so much, you have to know so much about a topic to be able to know who's blowing smoke and who actually is giving you a good science. And a lot of people dip in and they look at five articles and they proclaim certain things because they're listening to the wrong people who are repeating stuff that's not true. And they're just promoting bad information. You have to kind of step away from career wanting to make money if you really want to know something. That's why we have tenure and that's why we have academic positions because you're supposed to be able to live a life while being a scholar. But since I, I, I was never appointed a scholar at a university to do this, I'm in public health and grant writer and educator. So in order for, to really know a topic as confusing as oxalate, you can't not casually dip and read 40 articles and know what you're talking about. If you had like an unlimited budget and you could design a dream study about oxalates, what would you do? You know, I would start first with simple people studies. I would take a list of people with pain syndromes whether it's tooth pain from a dental school or arthritis and design diets for them and design ways of measuring their well-being and measuring the reactions to the diet and start documenting the clearing illness that shows up and start taking tissue samples because people will start moving oxalate out and sometimes in idiosyncratic ways. Some people, when they start getting into clearing illness, they'll get severe diarrhea. So we actually need to study what's coming out in that fecal matter and see if what's happening there and understand that reaction. Some people get these rashes that blister up and push out whole crystals. Now I've never had that happen to me, but I have plenty of clients and followers who've had that happen. I want to test that tissue, what skin is coming off, what's in that skin, what's in those crystals. And then the, most of us are peeing it out like crazy And I want to look at that urine and see what's going on. And and I just want to observe. Science is really supposed to be about observing and listening to biology and nature and having it teach us. Unfortunately, a lot of the way we design science now is we, we have to narrow things down to three specific aims based on trying to show that A and B are related in a causative way or not. And and nature isn't A to B. Nature's a big cobweb of things going on. Your urine has dozens of compounds. You cannot ever narrow down health to calcium is here and citrate is here, and therefore that explains everything. That's not how it works. Wow. Well, this has been incredible. So I'm sure so many listeners now are wanting to, well, what you just said, look into this further, but it can be so confusing. But thankfully, you've provided so many resources. So You have your website, sallyknorton.com, a lot of free resources on that website, as well as things for sale. And I'm so grateful. So listeners can actually use the code Melanie guide. Yeah. The beginner's guide is only two fifty, and you can get it for free. You've got a coupon. 
And then there's also a, a PDF cookbook on there. It's not a physical book. They'll get mailed. It's a download PDF. So we'll send you an email where you can download the cookbook. That's not free. That is got information about the diet and a whole bunch of material in the front and then about 180 recipes. So if, if you don't want to go full carnivore and you're trying to figure out what to do at Thanksgiving or holiday time, you're going to find something in there that might really make your life easier. And you don't have to struggle as hard as I did in the dark trying to create make it a lot easier for folks than it was for those of us who didn't have any resources and tried to figure it out. Oh my goodness. This is so amazing. So helpful. So I'll put for listeners, all of this information in the show notes, the show notes will be at melanieavalon.com slash oxalates. And again, so the coupon Melanie guide will get you that beginner's guide for free, or you can apply it as a 250 discount to anything else on the website. Like she says, there is that cookbook, which definitely can come in handy. Well, this has been absolutely amazing. The last question that I always ask every single guest on this podcast, and it's just because I've come to realize more and more each day how important mindset is surrounding everything. So what is something that you're grateful for? Oh my gosh. I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for people who really want to learn. I'm grateful for my life. I'm grateful for my husband. I'm grateful for this lesson. I mean, I paid a big price for this for decades and somehow I got set up by factors. I have no idea what they are to be in a position to be able to share this message. So at least my own messy suffering with all this pain and so on is turning into something that can really shift our thinking. And really we're in this cool, profound place right now rethinking our fundamental assumptions about food and health and building community online. The other thing I'm really grateful for is that we have this electronic technology and we're able to take advantage of it and get together in this digital way. It's so cool. Thank you. It's so beautiful. Well, I am so grateful for you and all of this work that you're doing. It's profound. It's incredible. And I mean, like we talked about this whole time, there's so few people drawing attention to this. And I think it's so huge. So thank you so much for everything that you're doing. Any other links that you want to put out there besides the ones that we just mentioned with the website? I do have an Instagram page. Right now I'm working on my book, trying to get my manuscript finished in the next few weeks, which is a pretty, (laughs) pretty big job. So I'm not really posting a lot on social media, but it isn't because I'm not working hard for you guys and trying to bring information to make your lives easier. It's because of my devotion to this that I have to stay focused on the book. But do check me out on Instagram because there's a lot of studies in there and pictures of my bad back and, you know, my improving osteopenia is now I'm in normal. I've recovered that. And there's just, you know, information about spinach and stuff that you can share around. So check that out and, and you feel free to comment and, and invite others to start learning about Oxalate to help us build this awareness. I did not know that you were in book writing phase. That's a lot. So I'm grateful for that, for you, for all of your time and doing that because, man, writing books, it's a lot. It's a thousand times bigger project than you could imagine. You know, it's not like writing a term paper in college. (laughs) I know. When I published my first book, I was like, okay, I'm good. Like, never again. (laughs) Like, it's like having a baby or something. Like... But yeah, Um, well, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for everything. And hopefully we can stay in touch and talk again in the future. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that next time, Melanie. Thank you. Perfect. Especially for your book when it comes out. That'd be great. Yeah, yeah. We'll have a bunch to talk about. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you, Sally. 
Be well. You too. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What Win Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.